Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Welcome back, my friends, to this episode of On The Market. I am joined today by the one and only Kathy Fecky. Kathy, how are you? Oh, I'm so excited for this interview. It's just amazing. She's so impressive. She is. Stacey Vanek-Smith, who is going to be our guest today, is a podcasting legend, particularly in the economics and finance space. And Kathy and I wanted to bring her on today because she is not an economist, but is so knowledgeable about macroeconomics and is someone who we all can learn a lot from in terms of how to look at the market, how to examine data and information about the housing market. Kathy, you are also extremely knowledgeable about economics, but are not an economist. How did you first get 
interested and learn about macroeconomics? I watched my dad make mistakes, honestly, and because he would get blindsided. And he was that typical dentist who made a lot of money but didn't quite know where to put the extra money and invest it. So as just a young girl, I... I was interested. And and then when, uh, you know, through my lifetime, kind of seeing people in 2008 get blindsided, like really intelligent people, I just got obsessed. And honestly, I interviewed Robert Kiyosaki in 2005, and he could see things. So I thought, well, gosh, real invest, like really good investors, they got to know this stuff, and they do. And it's uh, it's often what's not in the headlines. That's so interesting. I think that's part of what has driven me to learn about investing and economics as well is some of the financial struggles my family went through when I was growing up as well and wanting to learn more and be a bit more informed and have a hopefully no, we don't none of us have real control, but at least the idea of control over my financial future. Yes. So we've, uh, you know, we record these intros before the show. So what are some things that our listeners should listen for in this amazing interview with Stacy that they're about to hear? Well, people might just be focused on their thing and not realize that there's other things that will affect what you're doing that may seem totally unrelated. And that's how people get blindsided. And so in today's interview, you're going to hear about, you know, we're going to talk about energy. How, how often do we talk about that when we talk about housing? Not not enough. And uh, rates, we talk about that all the time, but you know, what's causing it? So there's, it'll just expand uh, what people maybe focus on and help you really at least be educated on things that you might not have thought of before. That's an extremely good point. I think part of, you know, the reason we wanted to start this show in the first place is to help our audience and investors understand how these things that are tangentially related to real estate, like the jobs reports that you hear coming out all the time or what's going on in the stock market. They seem, if you're just focused on the deal right in front of you, to have nothing to do with real estate or house hacking or whatever. But the macroeconomic trends are so important. You can have a great deal. And if you don't understand what's happening on this global, national, macroeconomic uh, level, you could be missing something really important. So with that, let's get to our interview with Stacey Vanek-Smith from NPR's Planet Money and The Indicator. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 
1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. It is my great pleasure to welcome Stacey Vanek-Smith, host and correspondent for Planet Money and Planet Money's Indicator podcast to On The Market. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I have to get some fanboying out of the way, and I promise Kaylin, our producer, I wouldn't take up the whole show just telling you how much I am a fan of you and your podcast, but in many ways, uh, Planet Money and The Indicator have been inspirations for this show, so thank you for trailblazing so much of the economics and finance podcasting world. Oh, well, that is very kind of you to say. Um, I don't know. I, I think covering the economy in ways that's like uh, that are understandable and interesting for people is like really really important. So I'm very excited that you're branching out from from real estate into other areas of the economy and yeah, any way I can help. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of all things economic. <laughs> Let's get into how you even started in economics cuz from my understanding you are not an economist you are a journalist by trade. So how did you become such an expert in the economic world? By accident, honestly. So I I did want to become a reporter. I wanted to be an arts reporter. This was my goal. Um but I really loved radio. And so I was just applying to any and every job in radio when I was I was starting out and I got a job on the overnight shift as a production assistant for Marketplace. And I really liked the show. I thought it was very fun. And so I just took the job. But I I really didn't know anything about economics, like, at all. And I had no interest in it. To me, the economy was just like Wall Street, right? It was just like CNBC. That was my, that was sort of economics. It was just money. And it was very uninteresting. I was above all of these things, of course, at the time. And so I started... On the overnight shift, I, I came in, it was like 1230 at night, and it was just me and Kai Rizdahl was the host of the morning show. Uh, Kai, super brilliant guy. It was me and Kai and then one engineer. <laughs> and so at one point during the first night, Kai was like, hey, can you write up a little, uh, some company had IPO'd. And he was like, hey, can you just write up a little paragraph about this for me? 
And I was like, what is an IPO? And he said, well, it's an initial public offering. And I said, oh, and I was so tired that I couldn't even Google it. I was so tired because when he first said IPO'd, I didn't, I typed in like I, like I, E-Y-E, like I, I didn't even know, I didn't even understand the words. And then I, I was so tired. I just was like, what is, what is an initial public offering? And I could see the panic beginning to like grow in his face. And he was like, it's when a company goes public. And I, you know, I was like, he was like, it is when a company sells stock. And I was like, got it. Okay. It's when a company sells stock. I will write it up. Uh, I'm very grateful he did not fire me on the spot. Um, But I really, so I had no interest in like any of this going in, but I really, really, really fell in love with it. Um, Right shortly after I started the housing crisis happened. And I think as the economy seemed to be kind of falling apart around me and all this stuff happened and it felt so confusing and so frightening. Uh, I remember one day the stock market dropped in half. It just dropped in half. And, you know, it, it just, I think, and I saw how powerful the economy was, how it was such an integral part of all of our lives, our homes, our families, our jobs, our livelihoods, our ability to travel, the food we eat, where we live, how we live. Um, and I think I, I really was just hooked. I don't know. I, so yeah, that was like more than 15 years ago. And I wouldn't, I I can't imagine covering anything else, honestly. See, you're an example of why I have just mad respect for millennials. (laughs) You're just... (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) I think you're the only person who's not a millennial who's ever said that, Catherine. (laughs) Well, then they just aren't paying attention. We'll just see if the the Gen Zers can uh, become as smart and amazing as as you guys. So (laughs) we'll make it a competition. That is very kind. That is very kind. Thank you. So what would you say is the big story today? Because I, I'm with you. I'm not an economist, but I'm obsessed with it. Uh, what, what should investors be aware of today that maybe they're not seeing in the headlines? I think, I think what I think is so interesting to me right now, um, and by interesting, I mean potentially alarming, um, it's just how divided the economy is. It's so strange, right? On the one hand, unemployment is really, really low. There, it's... I mean, job wise, and, and, you know, that's one of the, the key economic indicators is the ability to get a job. And right now there are almost two job openings for every person looking for a job. We had, I think, four and a half million people quit in, in March, in four weeks, four and a half million people quit. And that shows an enormous amount of confidence in the economy, um, an enormous amount of dynamism. Um, so on the one hand, that's incredibly positive. On the other hand, we've got inflation, rising prices, and that is of huge concern, right? Because the integrity of the U.S. dollar, of our currency, is so fundamental to our economy. If inflation gets out of control, it can really destroy an economy. Obviously, we're very, very, very far away from that situation, but it's it's concerning, uh, it is getting addressed. You know, in, uh, I think the, the government, the Federal Reserve, they are addressing it. Um, and, and I, I don't think there's like any cause for panic at all, but it, it is a, a strange moment in the economy there on the one hand, like really, really positive things happening. And on the other hand, 
really, really worrisome things happening. So I think, I think it's just a, it's a strange time in the economy. Yeah, I mean, Definitely. panic doesn't usually help, right? But it it does. Having this information can help anyone prepare, not panic, but prepare. I mean, one of my biggest concerns, and sorry to step over you, Dave, is when change happens slowly, people can adapt. When it's quick, it it does cause major major things to happen. Like if you're driving down the road and you brake slowly, you know, not so bad. If you're driving down the road and you brake quickly, it's it it can be dangerous, right? And it could kill people. So it it just some of these indicators, you know, are are unprecedented in the speed. I mean, we just had such a shock with COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a shock in like, every conceivable way. I mean, who would have imagined a force that would shut down much of the economy, just shut it down for weeks and months and years, parts of it, uh, and just what that did to small businesses and then the stimulus. I just think we I think you're right. It was the effect of just such an abrupt change, such an abrupt shock. The response to that shock, which I think the government was very fast. Um, I think the stimulus bills that were passed, they tried really, really hard to kind of handle the situation, which was, like you said, I mean, I know this word is massively overused, but it was unprecedented. It was scary. It was, I mean, we were completely in the dark for a long time as far as like what this was going to mean. It changed our lives in almost every way. And from what you've seen, Stacey, do you think that the unprecedented, I'm going to use the word again, economy that we're seeing that feels very frightening and uncertain to many is strictly a result of COVID and the policy response? Or do you think there are underlying problems with the economy that existed before the pandemic that are sort of being are brought to the forefront now? Both, I would say. Um, I I think one of the things that we're really seeing is just this this level of inequality, economic inequality in the U.S. got, I think, exacerbated by, by the pandemic because for people who have a lot of money or a fair amount of money who can, like, own property, own a house, like, the price of your house has gone up by like 15% nationally, right, on average, or way more in some areas. If you own stocks, I mean, the stock market has, I think, dropped a lot or 10% in the last six months or something like that. But, you know, over the course of the pandemic was really kind of against all odds and logic, really thriving. Um, So I think, and a lot of us, I was privileged enough to be able to work from home, could like adjust and do our jobs from home, for people who were in less privileged positions, um, maybe didn't aren't able to own property, don't have a job, they're able to work from home. A lot of people got laid off. A lot of people could not do their jobs or had to expose themselves to health risks to do their jobs. And now prices are rising. Now, if you own a house or if you have stock, then you know that that can be a good counter to that. Um, if you don't then you're sort of seeing the underside to it. So I, I think the way that the shock hit, and certainly the stimulus did go out to a lot of Americans. I think it helped enormously. Um, but I do think just the inequality in the U.S. has been kind of exacerbated um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, kind of just the, the economic divide has, has gotten worse. And 
And I think some of the underlying issues, I mean, a lot of the working from home issues, I think, highlighted some of some difficulties that were already in the workplace about uh, people trying to juggle parenting and uh, and family care and other things. And I think sort of forced forced a lot of situations into a crisis. Yeah, it seems to me like the the great resignation has to be a product of more than just what is going on from the pandemic or maybe the pandemic just made people see things more clearly or reprioritize their lives. But there's just this is, you know, I just see it across every single business. People are just leaving. They're trying new things. And Mike, I'm just curious if it if it means that there's something fundamentally wrong with the economy or the way that Americans are going to work right now, or, you know, we are on a podcast where people are fundamentally trying to create financial freedom um, because they don't necessarily trust their employers to provide a safe and secure retirement for them. So I, it's interesting to hear your opinion about that. And I'm wondering if you think this is somewhat temporary with the great resignation, or do you think this turmoil in the labor market is here to stay? I think it is both. I feel like I keep answering questions with like, yes, and Um, this is just a weird moment for our economy. Well, you started by saying that the economy was divided. So that would be consistent with that. Um, I think there are a couple things or many things going on uh, with the workforce. One thing I think is maybe a little harder to measure. And but I think COVID and the and quarantine and all that. Um, I think there was an emotional component to it where people started to question the role of work in American life and like what, where do I, you know, I think before that almost without question, it was like, well, you move to where you can get the best job. And so much of our lives revolved around work so much of the way we'd find ourselves revolved around work. I think a lot of that changed. So I think there's a cultural shift going on. I think that's part of it, but other things, I think are quite interesting too. the rigidity of the workplace, I think is maybe forever altered, right? I mean, there's no reason why, I mean, we don't work in a factory, so there's no reason why we need to start work at the same time every day and go to a particular place and make a particular thing and leave at a particular time. Um, There's no reason for that in many jobs. There are, I mean, there are reasons for it, but but some of them get a little squishier, right? It's like things like synergy, <laughs> the dreaded synergy. <laughs> um, for some jobs, it is very necessary to show up at a place to do a thing. But I think because we were all sort of forced to find new workarounds and, you know, to do our jobs or uh, live our lives, honestly, Um, I think it's sort of thrown into question a lot of workplaces are sort of trying to open back up and like, okay, everybody back to the office. And I just, I don't think business as usual is possible because I think for a lot of workers, it's like, well, why do I have to go into the office? I mean, people have moved to other places. I think there's been a huge um, like reprioritization on space rather than proximity to the office. Um, and, And I think... I, I don't know. So I, I think there's sort of a questioning there and the power dynamic has just shifted, right? I don't think in my whole career I've ever seen a moment where workers have more power than they do right now. 
Um, and I mean, you've seen this with like some unionization activity, all the open positions, all the great resignation. Workers have a lot of power and wages haven't gone up much in decades. The the power has been in the hands of business for a long time in the U.S. And it is shifted now. And I think the combination of sort of the openness, we were all forced to to sort of jump into like, you know, how are we going to do this job? Is there a way to do this job from home and remotely and with all of that, um, that kind of openness coupled with the, all these open positions, two open positions for every unemployed person is insane. Um, I think those, that combination of those two things, I just think right now there's just a power shift, you know, it's a, it's a power shift. And I think companies are going to have to adapt you know, you you made such a great point because the millennials are the largest generation today. And like every generation, uh, the younger generations transform things and you are the largest, just like the baby boomers were the largest in their time and they, they transformed things. And it's it's usually new and innovative. So it, to me, it's extremely exciting that people got a pause, you know, and, and like you said, those workers lost their jobs, but many of them made more at home with uh, unemployment checks that were higher than normal and could, could just take that pause and be creative and think for a moment of what they really wanted. So it, I just see it as so incredibly exciting uh, what, what you, what again, your generation is going to create. I'm looking forward to it. And I think it is going to be different and new and exciting. And yet at the same time, there are things we need to be paying attention to, just like always. Listen, we had many, you know, decades ago, we weren't sure if two crazy people, two world leaders were going to blow up our world. So there's always been... And we're right back there. there. (laughs) (laughs) All comes full circle. Here we are. Uh, But yeah, what are the the things that we should really be uh, paying attention to right now? Well, one of the things that what you're saying makes me think about a lot. And and I think this is a really bright spot is the number of businesses that were started during the pandemic, which really blew my mind at first because I thought, you know, all these small businesses are closing. I live in, in New York, I live in Brooklyn and just, it was really, really bad because, you know, a lot of them didn't have much of a cushion. It was small businesses. Um, a lot of them just closed because they couldn't adapt fast enough. They just didn't have the cushion that like maybe bigger companies had. Um, and I was like, this is not an environment that seems inspiring for people to start businesses, but a record number of businesses were started. And a lot of businesses by women, by people of color, other marginalized groups, like just entrepreneurship exploded in this country, which I think is like a really interesting thing. And I think, like you said, people had a moment, they were at home, they didn't have to go to work. Financially, they were okay because of stimulus checks and other things. And I think it was just a minute to think. And I, and also I think people's relationships to their jobs, I think a lot of layoffs, people started to feel like not that happy, you know, or, or discontent. And I think that combination of things did cause a lot of businesses to start. So I think that's a real uh, point of optimism. The indicators that I'm looking at now, well, one of them is jolts. It's called jolts. It is a very wonky indicator, but I love the name so much that I always say jolts. It's it's essentially the quits rate, the, the, the share of people quitting their job. And it lags behind a little bit, like a, a couple of months. To, um, but it's been hitting record highs month after month after month. Millions of people every month quitting their jobs. To me, that is just an incredibly powerful economic indicator because it shows the level of confidence in the economy. 
And confidence sounds squishy, and it honestly is, but it is such a powerful force. I mean, emotions kind of run the economy in a lot of ways. I feel like it's it's a little confusing to talk about, but it's just true. I mean, inflation, an inflationary spiral, which is when inflation gets out of control, that doesn't really happen unless people think it's going to happen. That is like an essential ingredient if people lose faith in the currency. Um, if people lose faith in the economy and stop buying things, that shrinks the economy. So the fact that there's all this confidence is powerful and a powerfully positive sign. Um, inflation is is worrisome. I mean, that's the other thing, obviously, we're all looking at. Um, and prices of things going up. And this is something that we just see all around us, right? I mean, it's, you know, I did like a double take in at the grocery store the other day. And I actually like took the receipt out on the sidewalk outside of the grocery store to just check. I was like too embarrassed to do it in the moment. But I was like, I think this can't be right. And I went through all the charges and it was right. <laughs> I was, it was just like 30% higher than I was expecting it to be. Um, or a lot of people like at the gas station, the pri- like people are posting, I don't, I don't drive when I'm in New York, but my parents live in Idaho and they drive everywhere. And normally Idaho gas is very cheap, but it's gotten super expensive. I hear about this all the time for my parents. You have to drive places in Idaho. There's not really public transit. Um, so I, I don't know. I think those, those are the two things that I'm, I'm really looking at. And then of course, home prices is a big one. Um, those are, especially since I started my career, like at the sort of peak of the housing bubble, uh, I'm like looking at the prices and all of the sort of the frenzied activity around construction. And of course this gets worse because of supply chain things, materials can't get places. There's a labor shortage, which means it's hard to find people to build the houses and, and everything. My parents ordered a dishwasher because the dishwasher broke and it took six months for the dishwasher to arrive. Um, and I heard a lot about this every time I called them. Uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's like those indicators, big and small, right? I mean, it, it's funny when I'm talking to my, my parents about the dishwasher, but if you blow that up, you know, it, it affects the whole economy. Or if I like my grocery bill, it's kind of funny. I was fine. But, you know, it's not fine if you're on a really tight budget, you know, when you've got a bunch of like mouths to feed or dependents counting on you. It's, you know, all these these things, that, you know, they're little individual moments, but they do add up into sort of big economic forces. Well, Dave, you know, my my thoughts on inflation and why that happened and how do you, you know, bring in 50% more money into the economy and not get inflation to be this could have been totally avoided. But and, you know, we've talked about that. What we haven't talked about is is energy. And and Americans have taken for granted what we get so easily. That's just brought to us for decades, right? We, you know, we're, we're in that uh, housing construction business. Why would you ever have trouble getting lumber or a garage door or like you said, a, a washer and dryer so you can close on the house? You know, that that wasn't in our, you know, in our, in our thinking. And we may be, we are currently in a place of somewhat more scarcity than we're used to. And that could increase potentially if there's more problems with energy. So I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, we're, we're hearing that we're the U.S. is tapping into our oil reserves. What does that mean? And how will that affect businesses and, again, the supply chain? Well, 
that has been a very, very interesting part of the story. Um, and, you know, like you were saying about sort of all of the supply chain issues that we're seeing, um, we just got so used to, I mean, the supply chain became so efficient. Everything was became global. And it was like, where is the, the cheapest, most efficient place to produce every part of one thing? And all of a sudden, like, clogs have been thrown into all of that. And that pushes prices up too, because, you know, supply can't meet demand. So prices go up. So then the demand drops. I mean, this is just all across the economy. The oil thing is so interesting because in the middle of the pandemic, remember the demand for oil just vanished. Um, There was a moment that I reported when oil prices were for particular kind of oil, negative $35 a barrel which I didn't even understand how that was possible. Like how can something (laughs) that has undeniable value be like negative price, but it's because oil is difficult to store. Like you have to be careful about how you store it. There are all these rules about how you store it and nobody wanted to buy it at that moment. So basically it was like, here's this really expensive thing to store that you won't be able to sell. And we didn't know how long the pandemic was going to last. And we didn't know when demand was going to come back. And prices for oil just went through the floor. And then all of a sudden, prices went up. And what surprised me was I had done a lot of reporting on on fracking and sort of how, I mean, obviously, fracking had a lot of issues with it. But one of the good things was like, okay, our dependence on foreign oil is gone. We will have as much oil as we need forever. And all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, how is it possible that we have an oil shortage? I thought we were having all these fracking, you know, all these fracking rigs that we built. Uh, and apparently what happens is if you, if an oil well sits idle for six months, there's like a 50% chance that you can't get it going again, which I did not know. And I don't think oh, well. anyone would have expected that. I mean, obviously oil has its ups and downs. It's always been cyclical as is like everything in the economy, but I don't think anyone expected demand to vanish like it did with COVID. It was such a shock, like you were saying about the car and the brakes, right? It's like the brakes slammed on the economy. Demand for oil just went away. It didn't decrease gradually like it does with an economic downturn. It like went away. Um, So now it's back and all these, and, and now the oil companies are, very hesitant to invest, right? I mean, it's if you're an oil company and you just went through this moment where you had to pay people to take your oil, $35 a barrel, and all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 now we need oil, now drill, drill, like now you need to invest in drilling. Plus, I think there's sort of this acknowledgement that demand for oil over the long term is going down because there's this new push for electric vehicles and things like that, battery power things. So, I think the oil companies are loath to invest. It takes a really long time, even if they were gung ho, you know, to like our like exploration and drilling and setting up well. This, these things you can't do this overnight. Um, so the energy situation, I was completely floored when they were started talking about shortages again and prices started going up so much again because I thought. Um, I, I thought this was something we would never see again with fracking. I was like, well. Um, there will be no more dependence on foreign oil for the U.S. and there will never be another oil shortage again. But here we are. Oh, Stacy, you and me both. Uh, you know, our audience knows I've got some land in North Dakota. It might uh, the value might return. But there's 
supposedly an ocean of oil up there in uh, in North Dakota that, you know, was being pumped and billionaires invested. And then they lost everything and not really in a big hurry to go back. Well, yes, exactly. And I think a lot of companies invested a lot up in Williston. And it was I, I went up there in the beginning of the well, in the middle of the housing crisis, but it was a boom for Williston. It was the only place in the country that was adding jobs. And I remember just being so shocked when I went there. It was, the growth was incredible. People were sleeping in their cars in the Walmart parking lot because there was no housing. They couldn't build things fast enough. There were these man camps that went up. They just needed workers. I went to McDonald's and for lunch or something and waited for like an hour to get help. And they were these big signs. Like if you refer a McDonald's employee and they end up working for four weeks, we'll give you a flat screen TV. It was just insanity. Um, And it was this, and I talked to a couple of people who'd been there and they were like, well, you know, there was a boom and a bust here before. And it seemed so impossible that that boom would go away, but it, It did. It did go away. And there was a big exodus out of Williston. But now, of course, everybody, you know, now, of course, oil prices are coming up. And and eventually, eventually, that will push oil investment. It has to. What do you see, Stacey, as the short-term implications to the economy? Of course, this is hitting the average American at the gas station. But are there other broader implications for how these high energy prices may impact the U.S. economy for the next few years? It's a good question. I mean, it will slow things down. Uh, higher prices slow things down, and oil affects every part of the economy. Um, I think it will make. I think it will be especially hard on lower income Americans because you know, on small businesses, on people who have less of a financial cushion, because it's often an unavoidable expense. It's in everything from packaging to shipping to everything, um, to your ability to drive to work. So I think it's going to be, I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things that will hit people a lot. I think in the long run, it's probably, I think I've noticed sort of an accelerated interest in like battery power, electric cars. I think, of naturally, right? You know, you see the volatility of oil and you want to get away from being dependent on this volatile commodity. Um, this volatile substance, sorry, commodity uh, just means a thing that's bought and sold. Um, so this like valuable substance uh, that can like lose value and gain value and just, you know, you kind of want off that train a little bit. Um, but, but yeah, I think it'll just make a recovery slower, I think it'll make inflation worse because if gas is more expensive, it's going to push up the price of everything else, right? I mean, because if, you know, it's more expensive to ship apples across the country because the truck has to pay more for gas, then the people have to charge more for apples and on and on up the chain. So, um, yeah, I I think it's going to make it hard for inflation to come down. Yeah, and my and then my concern is the tapping into oil reserves and not being able to 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 get up and running in time to replace it. Where do we get it from? And what happens? We've never again. We've just never thought about it. You know, you go to Texas and people bu- drive the big trucks. They're like, oh, we got so much oil. Don't worry about it. Uh, it, it. That's where we've been for so long. So 
we can't even conceive of the idea that we might have a shortage of it. And what do we do and how do businesses function? So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since we've had an oil shortage. Um, My mom actually said one of the things she did for my dad uh, early in their marriage was she got filled up his, it was like during the gas crisis, they were living in LA and my mom like filled up his car. And she said, this was like a major gesture of love. Cause it took like two hours. I don't know, waiting in line to like fill up her car. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, she told me the story because she, you know, because it's, we're definitely very, very far away from that, but you know, we're, we're sort of coming back into a moment where, there's potentially an oil shortage that's pushing up prices where the, the supply of oil is in question. So a good a good indicator to, to track. Oil pr- always, always oil prices, yes. Stacey, you mentioned earlier that housing prices is, are, are one of the major indicators that you are watching. And for our audience, that is, of course, of particular interest. We've talked about a lot of things so far, and some of them are pointing to positive parts of the economy, some of them pointing to more negative. How do you sort of unify all of these indicators and, you know, and and think about where at least the housing market is going over the next couple of years? Do you have any thoughts on that? The housing market's very interesting because it, I feel like it's changed in this interesting way. I feel like working from home kind of changed the housing market in this interesting way. I mean, there were always the I think economists called them super cities where everybody was moving. Industry was really concentrated. I think that started to change. I talked to this guy who lived in Bozeman, Montana, and he was trying to buy a house and he lived there for years and years. And everybody was moving to Bozeman because they were working from home and Bozeman, Montana is absolutely beautiful. And so he he kept putting offers in on houses and kept getting outbid by, as he put it, people from California who had a lot of cash. (laughs) Um, And I mean, the same thing's happening in Idaho too. It's like all these people from like cities where things are much more expensive can come in and like, wow, I can get a, whatever, a three bedroom house for $2 million. That's amazing. But if you're in the local economy, making local economy money, it's not necessarily doable. So I think, I don't know, the housing market's just been so interesting. And then I think the labor like all the labor issues, the tight labor market we've been seeing and the supply chain issues have made the ability to create more supply of housing really hard. And they're just the demand for people who are now prioritizing housing more. They want more space. They want to spend more time in their home. They want acreage or at least a yard. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that's really interesting. And so what does this mean? I think for people who own homes, this is kind of awesome because the value of their home is appreciating this investment that they made. It's the biggest investment most people will ever make. Um, this Their major investment is just, this was a good move. For people who don't have homes, I feel like this could ice them out a little bit because interest rates are going up. If you don't have a ton of money to throw around, it can be hard to get into the housing market. So I'm afraid that it's kind of making sort of the the dream of owning a home more difficult, even in small, even if you're willing to kind of move away, because that was always the trick, right? It's like, well, if you move outside of the city, you can get space, homes are affordable. I don't think that's so true anymore, because I think there's so much more flexibility about location. Um, 
So yeah, is that answering your question? It does. Yeah, you, you okay. brought up two two points. I, I think are really important. One is, and I'm curious about Kathy's opinion about this. Is we've seen since the Great Recession and the financial crisis that home building declined a lot, and it only recently started to recover. And we're starting, you know, if construction remained at the rate it is today, we might build ourselves out of the housing shortage in, you know, five years or maybe 10 years. But I'm curious if, Kathy, you think that, you know, Stacey makes a great point. We have labor shortages. Permits are super hard to get. Price construction prices are going up, material prices are going up, and interest rates are going up. So I'm not sure if builders are going to be able to pass along prices to buyers at the same rate. So do you think, even though construction really has ticked up over the last few years, do you think it's sustainable or are we going to start to see construction start to decline? Well, construction, you know, builders are facing the same thing that, you know, the the oil investors were facing a few years ago. Builders were wiped out. They were wiped out in 2008. They just walked away. And fortunately, I was able to come in and pick up what they left. So at very cheap prices, but that's not the case today. The Everything's expensive, but builders just weren't going to take risks and build subdivisions and, and be speculative. They built to order, basically. And um, it's really interesting, Stacey, that you men- mentioned Bozeman, because my partner and 40-year and veteran builder, his daughter went to college in Bozeman. He went up to see her and he said, wow, this is an amazing place. Um, but they have a terrible shortage of housing. He couldn't find her anything affordable and he's a builder. So he, he decided to build some housing. And our intention, this was three years ago, our intention was to make it affordable. And and our pricing was around three to 400,000. And we were excited about that to, to be able to provide that for students. Our costs have gone up so much that our prices have doubled and our 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 profits haven't, you know, because costs have gone up. We can't even get labor. We have to fly labor in. We have to hire, uh, you know, get trucks to just go to another state to get the things we need because we can't get them. And, and you know, no, builders aren't being greedy. They're just trying to cover their costs. And, and in some cases, not, you know, not. And, you know, builders across the country are going back to their to their buyers and saying, we can't finish this house unless we increase prices. And there's a caveat in the and the contract saying that you can do that if there's a force majeure, if there's a, a you know act of God that you know a builder can't control, we can change the contracts because we can't finish the house. So it's it's um it's very sad because the whole idea of being able to bring on new supply and in our case bring affordable housing, we can't do it. We can't do it. You know, LA tried to bring on affordable housing. We talked about this before for the homeless here, and it would cost eight hundred thousand dollars per tiny little unit. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that was, you know, not the most efficient ways to have the government try to do it. But, um, it, you know, it's, it is very concerning. I will say, though, being the person with more years with, behind me and with lots of experience, it was never easy to buy a house. Never easy. It's never been easy. And I really want, well, let me take that back. In the 2000s, it was very It was easy, easy for a little while there, but that was a problem. It was very easy. <laughs> Let me take that back. You could walk in. This is when I got into real estate. You could come to me and I could give you a loan with no money down. In fact, I could give you money back for buying a house and that money could go to furnish it. So, you know, it was super easy. Oh, and by the way, I didn't have to check your credit or know anything about you. So yes, there. They, obviously that didn't work out well, right? <laughs> so I don't think we're going back to that. But when, you know, when my parents bought their first house in Atherton, California, the most expensive part of California, when I was a teenager, 
it was $90,000. And my dad was a dentist. He was well-to-do. And he had a very difficult time buying that house. So it's it's always been a challenge because maybe at that time the interest rates were higher or you had to put more money down. And it was always something where like, if you really want this, you can do it, but it's going to take some effort. It's not, you can't just walk in to a mortgage broker and get it. You know, you're going to have to save money or you're going to have to be creative with the ways that people do it on bigger pockets, or you're going to have to bring people together. You can still get 3% down loans with FHA. It's still not bad. You don't have to have perfect credit today. You just have to be willing to uh, be a little bit uncomfortable. And and I think maybe some people don't want to do that. But in bigger pockets, we learn it all the time, right? It's, you know, you, you maybe have to house hack. Or in my case, we got into our first property. And this was when, you know, things were much cheaper and interest rates were low, but we didn't have the down payment. Um, so, you know, we, we bought a house and turned it into a fourplex and had people living with us, you know, and that's how we did it. So I, it's still very possible today. You just have to be a maybe willing to be a little bit uncomfortable or work a little bit harder. But I just want to make that super clear. It's never been easy except for the 2000s. And that we're not going back to that. Yeah, I do I do think um, the supply issue could change it from not easy or like a financial stretch into just not being a possibility because if you're in a if you're in a hot market and people are no matter how no matter how much you're it, it could just be out of reach I think for some people. And I think the the supply issues you're talking about in Bozeman are so interesting cuz those are like hard economic truths you're hitting up against. It's like, well, we have to, you know, suddenly you have to push prices up. It's not just a decision. Um, You just end up in a situation where things are just getting out of reach for some people because, because of just the logistics of like how much stuff costs. And, um, and that is, I think, I mean, ideally you're in a situation where even if you scrimp and save, like it is possible to buy a house because that can be such an important asset that can kind of propel people into a different, I mean, that's sort of part of the American dream. Housing was always so tied into that. Um, And there can be other ways to achieve that that have nothing to do with a house. And maybe we've been too dependent on that. But but I do think, um, I do hope that that housing prices settle a little so that it's not so out of reach, especially, especially in like these really hot markets where things just become astronomical. And I apologize on behalf of my fellow Californians for driving those prices. <laughs> up. We've been, we've been doing it for decades. So <laughs> no, I mean, it's just it's just the natural evolution. I think that that's one of the such interesting thing from working from home, right? I mean, it was always like, well, you know, all these lucrative jobs were created in California, right? Silicon Valley was there. That's been like the economic engine for the country and the world, honestly, for years now. Um, And the idea that now that you can do those jobs from a Bozeman, Montana, that just changes the equation and the whole housing market, I think, in a way that is pretty new. We've never, I don't think we've ever seen a situation where housing was potentially totally disconnected from industry in an area. This is interesting. Yeah, it feels like there's almost this rebalancing going on in the housing market where we the proximity to jobs, as you said, Stacey, used to be one of the prime drivers of housing value. You know, if you could find a place in Silicon Valley close to a great job, that was really important. And now we're seeing these huge migration patterns where people are leaving those cities and that lowers demand in those cities. And so that could lead to 
probably not negative, but maybe slower growth in the traditionally popular cities. And we're seeing a lot of areas, particularly in the Southeast or in the South, where there are much less expensive areas. And people, I think, are going there because they get more value for their money. And like you said, Stacey, are, are likely trying to chase either that acreage that they're looking for, the square footage that they're looking for, or their piece of the American dream. And they just want that home ownership. Uh, and I think it's unclear if that's going to continue, but the trends right now are strongly suggesting that migration and population is in a great reshuffling and it's going to be really important for housing investors and Americans in general, just to keep track of what's happening there. Cause as the potential there's greatly shift, um, the economic epicenters of the U S at least in my opinion. Oh, totally. Cause the way it always was, was there'd be a local economy, let's say, um, San Jose or something, right? And, and salaries in San Jose are really high. So housing gets really expensive. So the prices of everything around there go up, food and clothes. So then like the local restaurants, they have to pay people a little more to work, you know, to work there, to be able to afford to live around there. But, and that was always the little ecosystem, the little economic ecosystem that would build up in a local community. But if that's different, you know, it, it's interesting. Like, I wonder how, cities are going to adjust because if you have a lot of people who have a ton of money, but who are being paid by a company who is in a different place, that could push prices up too, right? I mean, there's like a willingness to pay a little more from people who have a little bit more money. And I mean, this is sort of like time immemorial, right? I mean, I don't know. I grew up in Idaho. This was always this big thing. It's like out of towners, pushing up prices, ruining traffic uh, and ruining the culture. Uh, this was always a big thing, but it, but it is interesting. I'm, I think you're right at Dave. I think there's like this economic reshuffling. It'll just be so interesting to see how, how things kind of settle because it, we're just sort of in this very new world. It's interesting. And we can also buy things online, which is also sort of in the mix too, where you're not necessarily like, well, I have to buy this from the local hardware store because there's nowhere else. It's like, well, now you can order it on Amazon. So there's a lot happening. That's okay. That's going to be my indicator to watch is the, the, uh, if I can steal your show's concept for a minute, Do is, it. Um, is the migration patterns. I think that's, that's something I've been looking at a lot. And I think for anyone listening to this, if you want to understand where, housing prices might be increasing or decreasing or economies are growing or, or slowing. The migration patterns have been slowing down. The migration has been slowing a bit since COVID, but they're still well above pre-pandemic levels and something I think that you should um, keep a close eye on. And it could also bring a lot of money into areas that have been, I mean, that's another like potentially quite positive aspect is there've been a lot of parts of the country that's just been like drained, drained, drained because they didn't have a lot of industry Potentially, this could be a lot of money coming into those areas, too. Um, so I don't know. Good and bad. Always. Oh, Dave, yeah, I can't I can't agree more that we've been following demographics for 20 years. And this has been happening and projected to happen. We knew that the southeast was going to be a huge growth area. And it is so generationally driven. You have two of the largest 
demographics, the, the largest generations, the baby boomers retiring, they have a ton of money, a record amounts. They're the ones who own houses and who own stocks. They've been around. They've been investing for 40 years. They have money and they are ready to retire. And they're probably retiring early than they thought, earlier than they thought. They can live anywhere and they don't need a job. And then you've got millennials who, again, a larger generation who are brilliant, the most educated of any generation, have information in the palm of their hands, and and they can live anywhere. So, you know, these two massive generations, and you know what? The baby boomers really love their kids. They love their kids. So where are they going to retire? Probably near their kids. This will definitely be something that we'll, we'll keep an eye on here on the market. Before we go, Stacey, and I, I still have a list of like 30 questions to ask you, but I know we do have to go. <laughs> are, are there any other, you know, indicators or sources of data or information that you would recommend to our audience of real estate investors, aspiring investors who want to make sense of this confusing economic situation we find ourselves in? I mean, I think the two big ones to watch are prices, the inflation rate, and employment, uh, the unemployment rate. Um, those are kind of the two key. I mean, I, th- I feel like those are always two of the key components uh, in the economy. The fact that they are sort of in quite extraordinary moments, both of them, uh, I think warrants a- another look. And I think as long as as long as the, I mean, if you want to get super nerdy, if you want to look at the quits rate every month, it's called JOLTS. Uh, it's like job openings and labor turnover. I think that's what it stands for. Comes out, it's always, it's like a month behind. But I think that is a very powerful indicator of the labor market. But also so is the unemployment rate. And so is job creation. Um, and those are very, you know, very easy to find data points. They get talked about a lot. And they're really, really important. Um, also prices, the inflation rate. Um, and to that I would add, so they have like the core inflation rate, but then they have, which excludes food and gasoline because food and gasoline tend to be a little more volatile, but just like maybe add those things in because obviously food and gasoline are two things that are super important to us. I think those are kind of the two, those are the two economic indicators to watch. Obviously, there's the stock market. People have very mixed feelings about that. I know the stock market isn't the economy. But I do think I do think that's also a powerful indicator of how comfortable companies are going to be continuing to hire and things like that. So I would watch for that, especially, you know, the tech companies. They've been such a driver of growth and prosperity and wealth for so many years if there is sort of a readjustment of, of tech companies and, and investment in tech companies, that could, I think, have strong implications for sure. That's a really good point. I mean, I was listening to a podcast earlier today that's saying, you know, Amazon's down 30% off its highs. Netflix is down off 70% off its highs. And on the surface, it's like, okay, they've gone up, you know, tripled in the last couple of years or whatever. But, you know, they are the source of, many high paying jobs in many communities and are, you know, expanding and growing their workforce. And if these lower valuations are going to prevent them from investing in the way that they have, that could have implications for the economy as well. Stacy, if people want to learn more from you, how can they do that? Oh, well, um, I, I wrote a book 
They could read the book. <laughs> uh, it's called Machiavelli tell, for tell Women. Us about it. uh, it's called Machiavelli for Women. It's about uh, women in the workforce. It's about the pay gap, um, the promotion gap, some of the difficulties of juggling um, motherhood and family care with work and some of the discrimination that happens around that. Um, I think that's particularly pertinent to now. It's it's just out in paperback. Um, you can get it wherever you get your books. Um, it's it's it is in fact on Amazon and bookshop.org and all those sites. Um, so that and then also just uh, Planet Money and the Indicator. Uh, we're doing I'm doing a series now for Planet Money on for for the summer on macroeconomics. There's like a little summer school series we're doing all about general macroeconomics. And we're looking, obviously, at a lot of the stuff we just talked about, supply, demand, energy prices, employment, all of it. That's great. So if you want to learn more about macroeconomics, that could be a great place for you to do that on the NPR's Planet Money Summer School. And definitely check out Stacy's new book, Machiavelli for Women. Stacy, thank you so much. You are one of my podcasting heroes. It was so great to have this conversation with you. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Wow, that was an incredible interview. I have been anxiously awaiting this interview for weeks because as we all know by now, I am a big fan. Kathy, what what did you think of the interview? What did you take away from that conversation? You know, I'm going to I'm going to focus on the positive because there's a lot to be afraid of and that's not going to get us anywhere. Uh, the the really the big takeaway I had was that there is there was so much creativity, so many businesses opened that um, we're going to do things differently. There are going to be energy issues, but we've been, we've known this. We've known that we have to get off oil. So maybe your generation is going to show us how to do that. So I'm going to stay optimistic and say, yeah, these are shocks, but maybe they were needed so that we could do something different and be more innovative. I love that because right now. It is really easy to focus on things like inflation or all the geopolitical turmoil that we're seeing. But there are really strong indicators that are positive right now. Like, you know, if you want a new job, if you want a raise, if you want a better title, there has almost never been a better time in history for you to go pursue a new career, to go find a job to get a raise. Uh, and I think that shouldn't be overlooked. I know you've said on the show previously that you don't think people should be retiring early. Um, and so if you are looking for a career or to earn more money with which you can invest in real estate, there are some really positive things that you can be looking at right now. And that's not to, you know, to to overlook the challenges. There are definitely challenges in the economy right now. But I think it's important, as Stacy said, to look at both sides of the economy, not just focus in on any one particular indicator, but sort of look broader at all the different things that are happening. Absolutely. Very exciting times. Stay positive. Thank you, Kathy. You're always a calming voice on this show, and we really appreciate that. I, I believe in the younger generation. I have to, so, but I do. Okay, well, thank you. We, we as, as a representative, I don't know if I any longer represent the younger generation, but <laughs> if, as a representative, I'm going to anoint myself a representative. We appreciate that. Before we get out of here, I do have one announcement for our audience, and that is that on Bigger Pockets, we have a new on the market specific 
forum. So if you are a member of our crowd and you want to interact with us or interact with each other, talk economics, talk data, this is the best place to do it. There is a link in the show notes, or you could just Google Bigger Pockets on the Market Forum or just go to the website and find it on the forums. I'm confident you'll be able to navigate there, but it's a great place. I started a couple conversations over the last couple of weeks, having some really good and interesting debates with people. And we encourage you to be a part of our on the market community on the bigger pockets website. Kathy, thank you so much as always for joining me today. I will see you very soon. Thank you so much. On the market is created by me, Dave Meyer and Kaylin Bennett produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media, copywriting by Nate Weintraub, and a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that, or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.